Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, Your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part? It's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next installment of the podcast series. Today, I have Lawrence Halstead on the show. Lawrence is a two-time Olympic fencer, having competed for Team GB in the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Games. Upon hanging up his swords in 2016, he moved directly into a role as performance director of the Danish National Fencing Federation. And at the start of 2022, he transitioned into a new career involving a combination of mentoring, coaching, and consultancy. Also around the time of the Rio Olympics, he became engaged with the wonderful sports charity, The True Athlete Project. And if you haven't, please go check it out. We do talk a lot about this in the podcast, and it's just a phenomenal place to go check out his work and what he's doing. So in his current role as director and mentoring, he gets to explore the most valuable and meaningful aspects of life in the True Athlete Project. In 2021, he wrote and published his first book, Becoming a True Athlete, that describes the true athlete philosophy for a more compassionate, holistic culture of sport. He is a husband and father of two living in Copenhagen, Denmark, and I thoroughly enjoyed this chat with Lawrence and feel we connected on a deep level with so many ideas and philosophies along the same lines. I feel very lucky to have had this chat with him and the awesome messages he puts across. Everyone should find something pretty deep and meaningful from this conversation. For anyone wanting to work on a more holistic approach to sport and life, this is a must listen. This then lends into playing better and achieving more. And along the way, not for life and sport, just to be about the titles and status and success it brings, but a deeper meaning all around. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Lawrence Halstead. Lawrence Halstead, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Thanks so much for joining me. And um, maybe for those that don't know your work, have not come across you yet, would you maybe be able to give a brief intro to possibly your sporting career? Because there's a whole backstory there and what your current work is now. Yeah, lovely to be talking with you, Jesse. Um, so I was a, a fencer. That was the the sport I played. I played a ton of sports in my youth, as we know that many good elite athletes have done. Um, got an amazing opportunity when I graduated from university because London won the bid to host the Olympic Games. And it was the first time then that we could be professional fencers in the UK. 
So I graduated without really any idea of what I wanted to do with life, my life. And then they said, well, you could be a professional fencer if you like. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Nice. And yeah, incredibly, that was the kind of one of the first big lucky breaks, I guess I got. But um, that, yeah, I spent the next six years training full time for, for the London Games. Uh, had a little, that went, that went well. It was an incredible experience. Just, I mean, what a privilege to compete in not just your home games, but hometown games. I'm from London. Um, so just an absolute dream. Uh, actually took a couple of years off after that went to went on a, a year's traveling and and part of that was in in Copenhagen in Denmark where I met my wife and never moved home <laughs> and I've been there ever since from that was 2013 uh went back and qualified for Rio as well so I had two Olympic games and just very different very special experiences both of them awesome. and I I'd hung up my my swords in 2016 after those games and quite quickly got another lucky break got became the first ever performance director for the Danish Fencing Federation. So I did that for five years, an amazing job. But at the same time in 2016, um, I joined as a volunteer, this incredible charity called the True Athlete Project. And we'll talk a lot more about that. Um, that kind of sat alongside, I was a director of their mentoring programs from pretty much the beginning. They're just starting out at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that as a volunteer job alongside being the performance director and that was kind of the next five years of my life. And then at the end of last year, end of 2021, I left the role in Danish fencing. Um, amazing, amazing job and suited me wonderfully, except for the fact that I then had a young family. I had to have a one and a three-year-old. And it's just, it's way too much travel and evenings and weekends. So I left that job and I've now moved over into uh, a part-time paid role in, in TAP in the Triathlete Project where we'd grown enough to be able to offer me a, a paid role. And for the, the other kind of part of my job, I do some consultancy and coaching, kind of executive coaching mm -hmm. uh, in sport, in business, uh, just kind of speaking, just various other things that kind of fill in in, in quite a fun way. Amazing. So, yeah, Amazing. that's me. Brilliant. And, you know, I kind of came across some of your stuff quite recently. I'm lucky enough to speak with Kath Bishop and she works for the Triathlete Project. And it seemed like a very cool overlap. Uh, like I said, just before we started recording, I'm devouring your book and anyone out there, I'd highly recommend that we'll talk maybe a bit more about that. But just before we maybe go down the True Athlete Project philosophy and route, which I'm, I'm super keen because I think a lot of people should hear about this. Um, when you were invited to become a pro fencer, what was the almost a little bit of a backstory before that? Was there no fencing in your life or did you do the junior career? How, how did it kind of go from that to that point of like, you're doing London 2012, let's do it. Yeah, no, you, you have to, I had a long junior career. I was in it from the age of seven and actually yeah. both of my parents were Olympic fencers as well. So there there's a, there's a real <laughs> background to, to my story. Um, but I, I mean, there was no chance of being professional. So I was just in it for the, for the fun of it and just kind of, doing mm -hmm. what I could. I actually, I had a pretty good junior career, um, had some, some decent success, but I, I decided to take a couple of years off to go to university, um, completely took a break from it. And they were my first senior years. So it was mm -hmm. a, that was a bit unusual as well. Mostly people really pushed through in their beginning, that transition into senior. Mm -hmm. um, but I took a couple of years off and then, and then got this lucky break that they were offering these contracts. And I was still, I was still up there in the in the national ranking on awesome. in, the, in my with my skills that I could I could take it up. 
Mm. And just correct me, I think I heard you say, so fencing was not professional before London 2012 got announced. It was amateur at that point. Yeah, entirely. In the UK, entirely amateur. I mean, the mm. odd the odd fencer in Britain would have done well enough to get a bit of individual funding from UK sport, but there was nothing like a system, all club-based, all fully amateur. So we, it was quite an amazing part of my journey, I think, was seeing the shift from in 2006 that was when I joined this program to 2016 when we when we competed in Rio that kind of transition from fully amateur to really pretty much fully professionalized mm. I mean we'd gotten so much right by then that we were nice. a, a truly a world-class team pushing for medals so that was that was quite an amazing kind of process to be to, to see firsthand mm. and um what's what's the state of play now with uh british fencing uh obviously london 2012 big crescendo has there been a bit of a legacy is it is it in quite a healthy place um there there is and isn't there we we got funding again after london for rio for the rio cycle so that went that went well um but then the the, the federation got all of their funding for the elite side cut after rio along with a few other sports Mm. Um, and so their kind of their senior elite program was just demolished overnight. Wow. Um, but they kind of refocused on the junior programs and that's been going really well. I mean, success in world and European championships, like we've never seen before this last year. So there's something, something to that, that the focus was all on the elite before largely. And now it's so much on the, on the junior, it had to be on the juniors and that sure. that's giving some, some fruit. Mm. And, and obviously this might overlap a little bit into the, the TAP triathlete project. And just maybe last thing on that, but it'll probably come through the conversation in your book. You, you reflect really interestingly about your junior career, like your, your kind of your mental state as a, as a younger athlete was, was maybe there's a bit of maybe an ego there. So hopefully that doesn't overstep the mark in a way. And then, but how you evolved and changed and, and almost, you know, all those lessons you learned along the way to bring you to where you are now and maybe helping similar athletes uh, go through that. So maybe a nice little transition into the, true athlete project philosophy and and i'd like to maybe discuss this and you know where it came from where it's been built from um i know you said sam parford was the founder but i can imagine you you've been pretty involved in the whole process have you yeah he so he founded it in in america actually in 2014 he was living there at the time so we're, we're a charity in the uk and the u.s um, I got involved in 2016 and it was still small with it kind of yeah so i joined pretty early on in the process and our um, as I said, I kind of got involved with the a mentoring program. They just had one pilot relationship and we built that up now. That's, that's become a kind of flagship of our, of the organization. Um, and I guess, but actually Sam brought, even when I joined back then, Sam had the, the vision already. So we, we're a charity that aims to create a more compassionate culture of sport. And by and we design programs, largely mindfulness-based programs, but they kind of spread into all sorts of places, uh, coach development and mentoring and um, working with whole organizations, but with this kind of compassionate culture in, in the center. And really in kind of to unpack that a little bit is this idea that performance and well-being and sport being kind of good for society and kind of athletes making and being a, a positive on their community they should go they should just be hand in hand as kind of part and parcel of athlete development whereas Mm -hmm. traditionally and still we see that you do all your training for performance here and then you might do a workshop every now and then on mental health or you get a a talk on that and then the social aspect is just that's done somewhere else by different people 
Um, so this is what this is what Sam brought. Like, the, almost the full vision was was brought from Sam from the beginning, from his experiences. He has you can interview him as well. He has quite a wonderful kind of story that led him to there. Um, and and then through the through the work that we were doing and through the programs we were building, that the kind of that philosophy just built out. Not that it changed at all, but it just yeah. got got more detailed. And it, it there was a book there already before I wrote it. Actually, for a long time, we we talked about it would be cool to have a manifesto of, mm. of the Triathlete Project. Kind of how we felt about it, like thinking of a a few pages, a little manifesto, what we stand for. And then when I started writing down what would be in it, I realized that there's a lot more than a few pages to it. Yeah, totally. So get into a little bit more of the maybe the, the, the nitty gritty of the True Athlete Project. Um, I'm just thinking, anyone listening, a young athlete that is maybe needs a bit of direction, a bit of help. You know, how does that work? Because there's a mentorship scheme, there's a coaching scheme, uh, you know, anything more granular that you could talk about? Yeah, well, there are different programs aimed at different people. So the Coaches might be interested in the coach development workshops. Um, we do, yeah, we're starting to do more with whole organizations like federations and, and clubs. Um, but for athletes, especially, so the mentoring program is, is the flagship for, um, for a reason that it's the place that we get to put our entire philosophy into. So mm-hmm. what happens? We match Olympic, Paralympic level kind of mature athletes with young aspiring athletes of age 15 to 24. And they work together for an entire year, really quite closely. There's quite a big expectation from from the for the program. They meet every one to three weeks, but usually every one or two weeks. Yeah. And they really and they build a really strong relationship. They build a bond together, and that's that's the power of mentoring, which is just incredible. I've become a real evan- evangelical for mentoring. It's there's nothing quite like it for developing people but then we have our philosophy and we have a curriculum that goes alongside that relationship and they Mm -hmm. kind of so we train the mentors in how to deliver the curriculum how to work with it with their mentees and that will give you a sense of what we're about so there's five modules in the curriculum their performance so kind of performance psychology identity and values mindfulness is a module on its own community responsibility and nature and connectedness so it shows you this is a really holistic program. Exactly. It's not just about who these people are as athletes. It's about who they are as human, like people in society and humans living on the planet mm. and how all of it's connected. This is the holistic aspect. Every bit of it is connected and every bit of it can support every other bit. So this idea that we have a performance is just the thing that you do on the, on the strip in the club. And then you come out and you live the rest of your life and and they're separated that's that doesn't work and actually there's so much to gain from recognizing how it all supports each other and kind of and just living living more of your full life in in all that you do Mm. oh lovely listen i think talking about these subjects and again i'm really definitely uh, super passionate about it there's a little philosophy i have called the spillover effect in my teaching and it literally is that i kind of borrow a little bit i think honda had a strap line which everything we do goes into everything we do and I just thought that was such a very simple, but just like, yes, there's the idea of trying to compartmentalize your performance and your social and then your life. And then your, you know, it's that, it's that other kind of way of thinking of, you know, the way you do, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. It's, it's mm-hmm. just that little kind of, you know, you might've seen it as that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, that famous speech from 
some five-star general where he says the most important thing you can do is make your bed in the morning. Mm. And it's just, it's such a lovely little philosophy. It's like, right, that's how we set our intentions that how that's how we go with our, our habits and behaviors. And then we build on that. Um, so I'm quite curious. So you've got these elite level Olympians, Paralympians mentoring these young athletes, right? And then you've got your philosophy sitting in and around that. I suppose the question is, how do you firstly choose the elite athletes that fit into your philosophy? Or do you, do you kind of coach that philosophy to the athletes? It might be a bit of both. So how does that work? Yeah, there's a nice question and, and an interesting part of this. So because of the language we use, because of what we're all about, it's very obvious. We, we attract already attract people who are, who are into this kind of way of seeing things and want to create a bit of a better or a different culture of sport. So already, the vast majority of the mentors who apply to us are just are in that space already are, are thinking that way, but they absolutely, they're not all like fully there with us on everything. So then it's, we do trainings, we, we kind of train them up, but it is, it's slightly sneaky as well that when they, they come on board and they, they're there to mentor and they, they buy into this kind of whole person approach, but mm-hmm. then they're the ones that have to stand for teaching this or leading their mentee through it. And as we know, the best way to learn anything or to you know, take it all in is to teach somebody else or to, to have to stand for it for somebody else. So by the end of the program, our mentors, are they're pretty much all on board with, with what we're about. That. Love that. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, we're, we're, it's kind of a privilege. I guess it's also part of, the, like I say, how we present ourselves that we very rarely have to turn mentors away for not being quite aligned. Nice. I love that. And yeah, there's such a, you know, I, just on my little kind of scale, when some of my juniors develop to the top end of the club, they do get tethered with some of the younger kids and they, they have to mentor them for three months at a time. They have to coach them some of the techniques and the movements on the squash court. Um, I sometimes get it wrong because the, the odd mentor is in like a 17 year old in a strange part of his life and he might be a bad influence, but that that's me then mentoring the 17 year old as well. And then I suppose how much, it's quite interesting. How much time or effort do these mentors have to obviously take out of their life, their training? Because obviously there's maybe a, an attitude of they, they want to win and we'll get onto the win at all cost mentality in a moment. How do, how do you navigate that balance when athletes are maybe competing at the top level, but they also have to be held accountable for their, for their mentors? Do you find that's quite an easy thing to, to manage? It's, it has been pretty easy because we're, we're upfront about what the expectations are and, again the ones who come to us they they want to they realize they want to do something else with their life they want something some other part of their life to to their sport and especially professional athletes they're usually training in the day they this training sessions that we run the workshops we run they're all in the evenings Mm -hmm. um and then their mentoring sessions they're flexible just to the schedule of the two people so it's flexible enough the the interesting thing is that it's a again it's a big commitment from the mentors in time and just to bring a bit of context to it. So when I was in the world-class program, we were required to do five appearances a year for our funding, kind of going into a school and give a talk. Mm-hmm. And I, I quite like doing them, but I, I just remember quite a few people grumbling about, I have to go and do this stuff and I paid minimum wage. And I still have to go and do all of this other stuff. And that was probably a, a few hours, I don't know, a couple of hours, 10 hours a, a year. And these mentors, the same people, same coming from the same system, they're putting easily 50, 100, 150 hours in and they don't get paid or anything. They're, no. they're volunteers. And, but not only that, not only are they doing that, they're doing it happily. And they're saying, this is some often are saying, this has been the most meaningful part of my year. 
I mean, this is this is not just our program, but this is about mentoring. What it means to be a mentor and to give back, you easily get as much out of it as as the mentee does being menteed by an Olympic star. It's it's such a special thing because you get both parties kind of learning, developing, and feeling this this meaning meaning out of it. Oh, that's beautiful to say. There's a couple of threads there. The one, the Carol Dweck growth mindset. She's very big on you know when 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 you have a sentence in your life saying oh, I have to go give that talk. Change the word have to get. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I get to go give the talk. It's like, listen, we're living some people's paradise, being able to have to do the things we think we have to do. It's like, come on, let's let's have a word with ourselves there. Mm. And, and then the second point, which you touched on, I, I might just expand on a little bit. You say these athletes get a lot out of the mentorship and they really feel they grow. Again, you might not have examples to mind, but examples of success stories of an athlete turning around and saying, while wow, my performance has changed the way I look at life, the way I see things from the other side now, have, have you had those type of conversations and those revelations from certain athletes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every year there's a, there's a bunch of them on the on the program who are competing at the highest level still. Some have retired already and a bit older. Some have retired a while ago. So we have a, a range of, of mentors. But those who are still competing, they they often, yeah, I often hear that it's kind of given them a new a new perspective, a new sense of kind of calm about what they're doing. And that's what you get so much from, from giving back to somebody far earlier on their journey. I, I did, I, I mentored in our first cohort and it just, mm-hmm. it kind of comes as a flood of just how far you've come and like how much you actually have got, have, have achieved in your life that you, you're not really aware of until you start working with somebody earlier in their journey. Mm. Um I don't. I can't think of anyone specific in that sense. But one story that that springs to mind was somebody a little bit different, but somebody who said they were they were still competing, but they said that the, the year of mentoring finally allowed them to retire from their sport. They'd been okay. clinging on and clinging on, and didn't quite know why. And then they did this year of mentoring, and they said it gave them this sense of of I I can see how much I've achieved, how much I've gained from my own career that. I'm okay to let it let it rest now. Nice. So that was uh, something you would never nice. never think of could mm. could be an outcome, but really meaningful. I mean, to that person, incredibly meaningful and powerful. Hundred percent. That and and just let me spark to my mind as you said there, because then obviously you've got your mentors who are you know whether they not in the autumn of their career, but you know they mature, they 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 really know their minds, right? And they coming onto your mentorship program for ultimately the joy of it, but also to better their performance. I suppose the question I want to ask you is how you can flip that, how you can get into a 17 to 15-year-old mind. Obviously, the maturity is slightly different. And whether it is just purely they mentor someone younger than them, you know, it sounds like a very positive thing, and I'm, I'm really on board with it. How can you get that type of thinking into that younger athlete as well? Do, do you know what I'm trying to ask there? Yeah, but that's the whole point of this program. And when I, when I joined and kind of there, there was just this joint tap there was just one pilot relationship very informal mm-hmm. and what i what i brought was it was the start of this curriculum i thought what are all the things that i and then our team have learned through our long careers that we would just think it'd be how amazing it would be to learn at 15 16 17 and that you could learn that you don't have to go through all the same pitfalls to actually experience so that's what the curriculum is about basically Brilliant. is getting those messages across and i I always draw draw out one example of this from my life, um, which I started working with a sports psychologist, amazing one, my mid twenties, actually the year before the London Olympics. 
And she, she told me I used to really suffer when I lost, like losing. I was really hard on myself and really kind of semi-depressed after every competition I lost. Mm-hmm. And she just said that, you know, you don't have to be devastated when you lose. And it was kind of like a revelation for me. I thought that you did have to be devastated. That you have, If you really care and it doesn't go the way you want it, then you should be really, you, feel, you should feel terrible. And then when she unpacked it a bit, I, I, it was very clear. Actually, if you do your best and you're trying your hardest, it doesn't make any sense to be hard on yourself. And the, it took a very short amount of time for me to just get this message because it was the right person at the right time. It was just somebody I respected and the message was was reasonable, was made complete sense. And it changed my mindset almost overnight. I mean, within a week or something. There are so many of those things that I think young athletes have just picked up or been told by somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about or that we, the right message coming from a, the right person, i.e. an Olympic mentor who they really like. Mm. There's just nothing, like no teenager is going to hear anything better than from an Olympic mentor that they're working with. Like, yes. I'm sure my parents told me the similar things. I wasn't going to listen, right? Yeah. But if it's your mentor and they've been through it and they've like, these are the people that the young athletes will listen to. Mm. Yeah, that light bulb moment just goes off. That's a, that's a beautiful story. And thanks for sharing that. It, there's a book called um, Every Moment Matters by John O'Sullivan, quite a, quite a good coach in, in the US. And that's the big philosophy of the book, Every Moment Matters. We're, we're coaches, right? And we, it's, it's a privilege. It's a calling. And you know what you have? And he says exactly what you said, having the right conversation at the right time with the right person. And he's basically challenging coaches to you know, be, be conscious, be aware, be careful of what you're saying and what moments, not be careful, mate, but it's like, you know, you have the platform to have such an influence on that kid. You say that one thing in the right moment, like your sports yeah. psychologist to you and not even a kid, an adult, how it can, can reframe your mind, your inner voice. Like you, you can be okay with yourself. And I think that's really powerful. What you said about, yeah, you know, as, as a top athlete, you might have to look cross and angry and upset and devastated when you've lost, but, but that's not always the case, is it? And then, mm. and then how did, was that just like a reframing in your mind? Did you just, the way you spoke to yourself? So it, when you lost again, after those points, after the advice you got, how did that look and sound for you? Yeah. I mean, it, there was a bit of work to do because I was so embedded in this attitude of like, I should feel terrible. I should beat myself up if I don't do well. Um, so we did some work afterwards. I kind of, I got it though. I understood it. And then we did some work on, on my values, especially how I could live up to my values. Um, kind of made a bit of a, a mental game plan for myself, a mental warm up, some kind of strategies that could help me stay focused as well. Um, but then kind of together over, over a few months, it just shifted everything. And then, so I have a, a story. I'll try and get through it quickly, but my Rio, my Rio Olympic experience. I, my first fight of the day, actually, it was my, my individual debut in the Olympics, and I w- started the match losing eight nil to my Chinese opponent, up to fifteen points. So I was looking like a complete whitewash. And a few years previously, I would have been a complete mess. Like this would have been anxiety and fear and just all of this, like sitting on my shoulder, like this is going to be humiliating. But actually what I felt was just none of that it was just pure determined, like fierce focus on what do I need to do now to make this, to turn this around. And it was, I, I lost it. I caught, I caught right back up. We were close and then he, he took it away at the end and I lost, but just that experience of how, how it wasn't like none of that fear, none of that emotion. And then afterwards, none of the, 
the issues I would have had. I, I didn't. I took about fifteen minutes to get over it, and then wow. Wow. I was just proud of myself. Really, I really did everything I could do. Mm, I love that, and on a very small level, it's it's, it's a little topic I try to do with, with some of my players. What is your definition of success? So we sit down and we define success and we take results off the table. It's like mm-hmm. the result, the outcome, we want to win. We're like, let's put that on the table. But as soon as we put it on the table, it's no longer part of like the rest of this conversation. And exactly that. I've, I've had a few athletes quite recently, you know, almost in, in like so nervous, they couldn't hardly even feel like they step on court. And again, okay, well, they won the first match, they won the second match, then they maybe lost to someone who they weren't expected to lose, but they were okay with it. They were like, but you know what? I had this list of things I discussed and I delivered on them and I kept mindful. I kept present. I kept in the moment. And that's all I can ever ask of myself. And mm-hmm. man, when we can get that type of thinking with athletes, it, it, it like you felt it, it shifts completely, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, you and I know, I think we, it's very rational, right? It's just the logical. It makes sense to it like that, that way. And the, the majority of the kind of things that get athletes and young athletes, especially kind of anxious and nervous and overly nervous is, the things that don't make any sense, like these irrational thoughts and mm. uh, the, imagining what people are going to think of them afterwards. That just like, That's why I think there's so much we can do just through good conversation with people that, that, that they trust and that they, they'll listen to. Mm. Um, there's so much ground that you can make up. 100%, 100%. Um, okay, so there's a few little threads I want to try to take you down now, if that's okay. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to keep on a little bit of a theme here. What do you see around the pitfalls and dangers of that win at all cost mentality? Because it's prevalent, isn't it? It's like, you know, the three minutes on the podium and, you know, we see the success and it's glorified. But what are, what are the pitfalls about that mentality, do you think? Yeah, well, I'm a good example of this. I, I think that was what led to most of my anxiety was this. I just had to win or I'd feel terrible. I, 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 would, I would definitely always say that I, was, I hated losing. Um, and what it is, is that, it just draws your focus away from what actually is important in a performance, which is the process. So, yeah, I mean, we all want to win and you, I, I don't think it has to diminish your, your desire to, to win, but it's kind of when the focus, when it's when at it all costs that, that just shifts what is, yeah, it shifts your focus away from what will help you win. So, I mean that, and that there are so many things that are out of your control that, um, that you end up just wrapping uh, wrapping the part and parcel of the same feeling. It doesn't matter then if, it, if it's win at all costs. It doesn't matter if something incredibly unlucky happened and you just nothing you could do about it. It's mm-hmm. just as bad as if you'd had a nightmare performance. And um, that that's the uh, I mean I, that's on an individual level. Then there's on, on a kind of organization or a cultural level, which is almost far worse. That it leads to practices, coaching practices treatment of athletes which we're seeing at the moment which are just inhumane totally unacceptable and that's so messed up that something like sport could be taken in that direction to something wholly unhealthy just a, just a detriment to society and to the people doing it all all because of some shiny metal <laughs> that, that it begins to get absurd it does, doesn't it? And and I think you might be slightly referring to the British gymnastics stuff that we've seen come out quite recently. And it is, it's just, you know, listening to it and when you investigate, you're like, wow, that, that win at all costs, you know, we, we get into the abuse territory, aren't we? And that's abuse from coaches to children. And then like the kind of the mindset that these, these kids are going to have, you know, like their self-image, their self-worth is just, man, it's just so damaging, isn't it? So, but yeah. then how, how do you help the athletes strike that balance between I suppose playing to win because we want to we want to get to that that you know those things 
but also playing for mastery. You know, I think it's, that's quite a nice balance to try and walk. And what advice would you give for athletes to try strike it? Yeah. I, so I like, I like, uh, I follow Dan Abrahams, a psychologist who, who very just writes really well about this kind of stuff. And I think it's you can basically see it all as as a bit of a skill or as dials to turn up. So that will to win, playing to win, is just a kind of motivation dial, uh, uh, or you can call it a fire dial. You can dial up your your fire to win, but if it's getting a bit too much and you're playing like a, a no headed chicken, then you got to dial it down and turn up some of the other dials. I think it's just, um, yeah. I mean, there are issues if you don't have any desire to win if, if you're only interested in kind of nerding out on this technique then mm. there's place for you for sure <laughs> you just yeah it's a it's probably a little bit on your own and part of the team is a bit difficult and that's going to be a particular place for you and there are there are people like that but if you're kind of a competitive athlete that we're usually talking about then there has to be some like desire to to win as well and um then then you kind of leave that as a given. There's things that you can do to stoke that. I think like just raising your awareness about why you love doing what you do. And, um, and then, and then I think just shift the focus. Like just assume that that's going to be there. You're not, you don't tend to have to dial that down, but you do have to dial up the, the focus on, on the other stuff on what's going to help you win. And going back to what I said before, like we know in sport that we need to, we need to focus on the process. That's the way we'll win. So mm-hmm. we need the, our mindsets to be just kind of, and our planning and our, I, I made this mental warm up. That was a huge game changer for me, really structuring my kind of mental approach to performance. So I was really consistent. Everyone's, I mean, the, the holy grail in, in sport in competitive sport is consistency, right? Everyone's got those days. They can, they can really turn it on. Mm. Consistency comes from, from planning your mental game. That's what, that's what I'd say. Mm. And yeah, something that, that I've tried to explore with athletes to get that balance. Um, I, I wrote an article called, are you having fun? How we reframe motivation. And what I try to do is I go, all right, here's your extrinsic factors, extrinsic forces. And I list them all out. Here's your intrinsic forces. And I list them all out. And I'm basically challenging people to go, okay, have a look at this list. Which buckets are you in a lot of the time? And, and actually when you really dig into it, a lot of the extrinsic factors is like, oh, you know, I'm playing for the title, the status, the success, how my friends are going to speak at me or speak to speak about me. And then it's going, okay, that's fine. That might give you motivation weeks and months out because if you need to grind, do a hard session, you know what? It can be a bit extrinsic. I, I, I'm going to get there. But for me, the closer you get to the tournament, I, it becomes a bit more intrins, intrinsic, you know, um, you know, doing it, mastering that skill, going, right, I'm going to learn a new technique. And actually, I think the more we can flip between the extrinsic to the intrinsic closer and in competition, that's what I'm trying to challenge people. I don't know. Does that kind of resonate with you or close or not really? That's really nice. I haven't, I haven't thought about it in a kind of temporal scale like that, that you, you might shift your, your focus of motivation. I, I can really see that, that resonating. Um, mm. I'll have to think about it, but mm. I like the idea. And I, it makes me think that, yeah, as the kind of nerves grow or the potential for nerves and anxiety and everything around the comp- competitions comes closer, that is... The, the trouble comes when it's external motivation, when you're thinking about everyone else and yep. the results, but then you're, mo- if you, then you do want your motivation to be shifting inwards and mm. um, focus on what you can do and what you can control. 
So it makes total sense. Uh, and I, I, I appreciate that you, you allow for the, the extrinsic motivations and you there's got a you have place to. for them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's quite a new one of the athletes. And again, it all maybe comes down to characters as well, because I've been working with this one young girl and she was like doing really well in that, but she got to a real crunch point in a match in the semifinals and she was tired and she was really trying a thing. And you know what she, at that moment, she said, I just need to win this. I'm going to win this now. And she actually, she said that, that actually gave her like a little, um, you know, boost of adrenaline, a boost of dopamine. And actually then I, I got a little bit deeper and granular going, well, actually like even within the competition at certain moments, maybe there's the odd little flash of, of, of the title, the trophy getting there. I think it's such a, you know, everyone's mm. character is slightly different, but that really worked for her. And so I'm starting to maybe nudge her down, the slightly more extrinsic, but at the right time, then mm. I think timing becomes an thing. So anyway, it's a little project I'm working on right now. Yeah, so that's haven't su- formed. super interesting. And it's all so nuanced. I mean, there, there would be nothing black and white in people's temperaments, right? Um, just, I mean, as with all of this stuff, it, you just want to avoid the extremes. Like the people who are solely thinking about the title, it's not going to do them very well, but... Mm. They, that, that type of person would not do well from shifting entirely over into a, uh, an intrinsic kind of motivation. We are, we, we all have egos. Mm-hmm. So the, we have to, we have to allow for them as well. Mm. Fuel them at the right time, the right way, isn't it? Um, mm. But, you know, this huge, huge question here. And, and again, we're not going too deep into it, but accessing flow. I think we're talking about things that are getting close for accessing flow. What does this look like to you? What, 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 what advice have you, could you have from your career? What advice in your like bit of mentoring now flow for you? Where, where does that sit? Yeah. Yeah. I've obviously thought a lot about it. Um, so I I see first and first and foremost, mindfulness is just the best tool that we have available for training, getting into, into flow. All mindfulness is really is, uh, training our ability to be to kind of focus our attention where we want it and to be more be more focused and be more aware of what's happening and that is almost part is almost one to one what flow is but actually it's it's not the same but it's the training for the the more you are you're training that skill the more likely you are to to then be able to drop into flow i think it's near impossible to say i'm going to be in flow now however brilliant an athlete you are you just you've just trained the practice you've trained your focus and you've trained your kind of routines so that you're focused on them enough you're kind of letting thoughts go by as skillfully as possible and then you're just more likely to to drop into flow so there's very little else i mean i think there's nothing else as good as mindfulness practice for 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 getting into flow and that's why i mean alongside all the other benefits for mindfulness it has this very strong connection to performance benefits because there's no there's no better performance than one that comes from from flow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we all every athlete knows that if you ask them what the best they've ever felt they'll describe a flow state so what are, we should really be seeking just relentlessly seeking flow in every as much as possible um and there's there's nothing else as good as mindfulness mm. now i've been i've been something maybe for another time jesse but i've been thinking about flow from a slightly more spiritual angle of um or kind of philosophical angle of uh of what that means and how you how our how our relation to our own ego is getting is just the the barrier to flow because one of the elements of flow is that your ego dissolves yeah so actually you you kind of merge with the present moment and just with the reality of what's happening now 
That's the experience of it anyway. Mm. So doing work with your ego, I'm sure you appreciate, uh, is one of those other ways that I think we could, we could tap into flow far better. And I think we're, we're nowhere, nowhere near no that in sport. We're right at the beginning. Mm. And I totally, I think that literally we could go down a huge rabbit hole there and, you know, the headless form and all of this stuff. But um, it's, I think someone said it really good the other day. We know more about the surface of the moon and the bottom of the ocean than we do about our mind. You know, there's mm. so many things in there that we don't even really know yet. We're discovering it all the time. It's great with the brain scanning, tracking and technology. It's really exciting. Um, and yes, I'm really glad you did mention mindfulness for flow because for me, that's a huge overlap. Um, one thing popped to mind, uh, something I try practice, I'm not that good at, but I try get it. Um, noticing flow in any moments, you know, noticing like actually if you're doing the dishes, all of a sudden like, oh, okay, I'm doing, I know it sounds really messed up, but the other day I went for like quite a nice run and just something happened. There was like some symmetry with me coming to like a crossroads, the car just stopping at the moment. I got behind the other car and the other car then came behind me. And I don't know, it was just this like, there was flow. I was just, and, and the reason I'm telling you that story is, I'm interested in, you know, when we practice mindfulness in the formal setting, 10 minute meditations in the morning, and then we go about our busy lives. And then we try to jump into the competitive field. I'm trying to get that, that balance of how can we informally practice meditation flow mindfulness. So it's a seamless transition from our sitting down, me talking to you now to when, if I do go for a run or I do go and compete. So I suppose what I'm trying to ask is, we can practice mindfulness in the pre-competition stuff. How do you think it overlaps when the pressure gets to its highest? Because that, that's what happens. And a lot, a lot of athletes understand it. They practice it and they go, oh, but I just forgot to have mindfulness in the moment. I, the pressure was too much. Any thoughts mm. about that overlap into performance there? Yeah, I've done a lot of work with well, myself and some other athletes on this. So the, the best tool, one of the, another one of the most powerful tools I've used is mantras in performance. So mantras almost come from Buddhist philosophy, a Buddhist kind of mindfulness practice, meditation practice. But in performance, I integrated mantras into working with the same sports psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, they just, they, basically they were an anchor for me to, to, to be present, but with the attitude, the mindset that I had decided beforehand that I want. So I'd have a mantra that I'd repeat Every single time, a bit like in squash, we'd come back before a point, stand ready. Just in that moment, I'd have a mantra that I'd repeat that connected to, first of all, it meant my mantra was now fight. That was it. So the now is to be present, reminding myself to be present. The fight kind of connected to the the attitude I wanted, which was a warrior mindset. I kind of, I'd, I'd built it out. So I had a more detail to it, but I, mm-hmm. that was that was it. In repeating that every time I got, to that kind of ready mode it was it was just a trigger to mindfulness it was connecting me to being here now in this in this state and i think and then i had various other mentors that kind of connected me to different that reminded me it, it was all about being present again and coming back to centering it was never about the tactics or techniques it was kind of at 14 all where it's a sudden death point i'd have yeah. a mantra just to remind myself if i'd got a long way ahead i'd have a mantra just Okay, reset. Nice. And that's that's that was. I recommend that to everyone I work with. Also in businesses, I've I've talked to this to to the guys I coach in business that mantras to to help kind of follow through with things, to help with motivation. To re- you can connect it to to your values, to your vision. Big time. Um, 
So that's a that's a powerful one. Mm. And again, that that then gets in the whole territory of of again the inner voice, how we framing situations. Maybe you know that you know that's maybe but more before performance as well. But yeah, I think I think the mantras and the way we speak to ourselves is super super powerful. Um, so you've mentioned uh, Buddhism, which which again I I'm on very early stages of it. Uh, you know, you've got different philosophies in the triathlete project. Sounds like you practice some of them. Uh, stoicism. I I always like to bring up the subject of stoicism. I'm a huge fan, and you talk in your book about it. Um. So why why have you gravitated towards Stoicism? We'll use that, uh, you know, that ancient way of thinking for modern athletes. What, what do you get out of that philosophy that you transfer to yourself and also the athletes? Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't there at the beginning. It just became clear that what we were what we were talking about in so many ways was Stoic philosophy, and and the same with kind of the the Buddhist traditions. It's not Buddhism that, that this has stemmed from, but we use mindfulness and compassion throughout everything that we do. So um, it was kind of just a recognition that this is these ideas are not new in any sense, that they've existed. And Stoicism is just such a great, comprehensive and commonsensical approach to kind of a philosophy for life. I loved it because it's Stoicism is often called a, a practical, practical philosophy. And my book is a practical philosophy for for flourishing in sport so there's that just that connection that these are not new ideas they're ancient ideas that we've known all through we just in different contexts in different areas of our life we forget completely and sport was one that we've just we we gravitate to to the opposite of stoicism to kind of catastrophizing to black and white thinking to labeling ourselves as good or bad based on our results to all of these kind of types of thinking that stoicism is just yeah, 2000 years ago had, had done away with it. If you followed it, just mm-hmm. recognize that this is not the way to, to live. And, and the, and, and the follow on the immediate follow on is that your obviously your experience of life will be better, but your performance will be enhanced from it as well. So I guess it was just a recognition that this, this, these, these are smarter guys than me. You've come up with this and just lending it a kind of a foundation that I, I don't need to, I don't need to say anything more than this is mm-hmm. Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and those guys who are coming up with these ideas. Hundred mm, percent, and it's, it feels like uh, you know as prevalent prevalent now more than ever that we need we need this in our life. Those 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 ancient thinkers and they had their problems, they had their issues with plagues and famine and all that stuff, and probably a lot harder we living in their paradise. Um, and actually, to use that philosophy is great. You know, the, a lot of it's about you know the thoughts we have and how we can control. Can't just control the thoughts we have, but we can control our responses. That for me is their big cornerstone. I really like trying to translate some of them things into sport, which is the negative visualization, the premeditatum malorum, where they meditate on their death. And it's getting a bit deep here, but where they go, right? Would I be doing this thing right now if this was my last day? And you know, the, the negative visualization for athletes, I think, is quite interesting and. I know a lot of squash players do it where they, they, they see scenarios of, you know, going five love down in the first game, you know, it's like, okay, so that's happened. What's my solution? Here's my problem. Here's my solution. And I really, I've, I've tried to borrow a lot of that thread to try and transport across. And, and yeah, I've been quite interested that when I've spoken to some of these, again, world champions, world-class athletes, when they're doing their visualization, visualization practice, it's way, way, you know, what it maybe used to be visualize, visualize yourself on the podium, lifting the trophy, all outcome-based. Now, what I hear from, you know, lucky enough to interview a world champion the other day. And he said, yeah, all like, like 90% of my thoughts is like worst case scenario. And it's not like a defeatist attitude. It's, it's a practical way of going, well, if this happens, 
I've gone through it in my mind and then I can execute or get close to executing in the moment. So yeah, I really like yeah, that. Yeah, nice. Idea. Of course, if things are going smoothly and you're playing amazingly, you don't need much preparation. You, you just stay in it. But exactly. you need the, to practice your response to those things, the times when it won't go well for you. Mm. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I did a, a whole bunch of the visualization you were talking about of like up on the podium before the London Olympics. And I didn't get anywhere near the podium. So I, I think it was just a, a waste of time or at least yeah. an ego trip. And and that, you know, there is something about the law of attraction, which I like a little bit, but it does feel a little bit fluffy as well. It doesn't feel that practical. It is very outcome driven. It's like you see yourself in that great house with driving that great car. And okay, you might realign some of your habits and behaviors, but it's not going to make fundamental shifts at the foundation of yourself, is it? And that's, that's Mm -hmm. why I think it is. And, you know, when people are visualizing success, fine, it can have a little bit, but I think it's, 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 yeah, kind of figure out that process side of things. It gets really interesting there. Um, so maybe on a little similar theme, Lawrence, you know, any advice that you'd have for athletes that might be suffering with, you know, the confidence, their self-belief because of the results, you know, so I'll give you an example. They, they're putting in the process, they're doing their, everything, they're journaling, their gratitude, their meditation, they are doing their pre-stuff, post-stuff, the results just aren't there. They're not getting the results. So now all of a sudden there's a suffering of confidence and self-belief. Um, and I'm struggling to kind of know what the answer to that is. But anyway. <laughs> I wanted to ask you as well. Yeah, just, it's, a tough it's, one. it's a tough one, isn't it? Because even though the athletes I'm thinking about really do buy into process, they're like, yeah, we, we, we get it. We love it. We actually do love it. But you know what? Week by week, we're, we're not seeing that outcome that's validating kind of what we're trying to do at the granular level. Um, you might not have an answer, but just a good maybe thought experiment. Yeah, I definitely don't have an answer. I have, I have some some thoughts. I guess I might move it on, move the conversation on. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that that's that's performance. That's the beauty and and harshness of performance is that you might not get what you want out of it, even if you put everything in you can. And and so that I mean that obviously leads to the fact that you need to be aware of what you're what you are getting out of it, regardless of the results. So obviously those people are gain, gaining huge amounts in terms of kind of training their determination, training their dedication, their like resilience, their their commitment, all sorts of things they're getting out of the process. So just we need to and generally in sport we need to be far better at raising awareness of what these athletes are gaining. Just being there doing that that you you've said mm-hmm. um but but there's no guarantees you could go years and you could go your entire life putting in as much effort as the guy who's world champion and not get anywhere that's individual difference and it's it's the yeah as i said the the beauty of of sport performance um i guess the only advice i could i could come up with with something somebody if i was thinking about an athlete i was working with try different things, try new things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, they probably are doing that if they're already that dedicated, but if, it, if it's going too long and you're, you're plateauing and you're just, you're still not happy with it, then try something radically different. Um, that's, that's one thing that could happen, but we, we should expect plateaus. Yeah. Like that's, that is a part. You, they're just not very nice to, to go through. Hundred percent. Yeah. No, tough, tough question. I know that wasn't really a question. It was more just like, yeah, something that's come up quite a lot in, in different, in different realms and stuff. Well, what would you, what would you add into that? Yeah. Um, again, I think I've used the trust, the process. It's, it's kind of worn out a little bit so that that doesn't quite happen. I'm definitely getting closer to the, 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 I'll give you a quick, I'll, I'll kind of, kind of almost say directly. So 
There's a player who wants to be, say, top 100 in the world, okay? And what if they only reach 105 in the ranking? So they kind of, but, and they're in their career and it's like, well, I can't tell, you know, like, I don't want to have the conversation. I, I can never say I was a top 100 player, but like, okay, so what if you're like 101, 102, you know, you're one place off and then is that success at 100 and failure if not? So I try and get them to think about their future self, like really projecting into the future going, okay, so like what groundbreaking difference is, you know, numbers on a computer screen going to really make to your life. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, again, I know I'm kind of talking, maybe not the kind of elite of the elite here, but I think it also can transfer right up to there. So I try and get them to th- run through some experiments or just thought experiments in their mind to go, you know, your future self 20 years after you've retired, you know, if you look back and you haven't quite achieved the, 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 the goals that you wanted, the, the, the number on the paper, the number on the screen, what have you done along the way? Like, and I'm starting to explore like a bit of altruism, you know, doing things for the right reasons, doing things like going, looking back and go, yeah, I haven't succeeded in this thing. That's an outcome goal that is, is, is fleeting, but I've succeeded in these areas. And actually, even if I don't succeed in the sport I've done, have I grown a skill set? that then I could, again, mentor someone else? Could I help someone else in a different industry? Have I added layers to myself as a human being that will actually be beneficial for the world? So again, getting very zoomed out there, but mm-hmm. because it's been so zoomed in for so long, I, and and yeah, I think a few of the cogs are starting to turn and there's a trust in that, but mm-hmm. not sure if I'm right, but I just, I'm trying to really kind of step back and you know experiment with that future self. What is that future self really looking like? And, and what have they done along the way? Yeah, nice. I mean, it resonates for me looking back at those moments that I didn't win a medal here or I, I did get selected for that. And it, it never means what I thought it would mean at the time. Mm. It's, it's changed to mean something entirely different. Yeah, it's really, I, I don't know if you've, um, Chris Hoy got interviewed a couple of times, I think from Simon Mundy's podcast, which is really great. And he was lucky enough when he was in his training facility as a young teenager, um, seeing like people like Graham Oberry and stuff, these idols he looked up to would be winning these amazing medals. And they'd be actually almost depressed afterwards and going, well, they just worked their whole life. Everything around them was, they didn't, they didn't work on their relationships. They didn't work on their social skills, whatever it was. And he was lucky enough to see it at a young age that he goes, I, I admire these guys for what they've done, but man, like I do not want to be that person that gets to the end mm. of my journey and I've just gone so much for the medals that everything else around me is destructive and chaotic. And he says it's such a great way. And he's a very good speaker on, on that win at all costs kind of area, but also what are you doing in and around that? So yeah, I'll send you the link to it afterwards. It's a really good podcast. Yeah, nice. Yeah, mm. I mean, it links back to your other question about the, the danger of the win at all cost mentality. I mean, it firstly, is based on a fallacy that winning will get you what you think it will get. And our is huge kind of misconception in society that you winning will make you happy and fulfilled and all these other things. And it's just so far from the case. It's only the case if your focus has been in the right place leading up to that. And then, and then it, then it can be a, an extra a bonus on top. Exactly. But, mm. Yeah. Mm. If, if you see that outcome as, yeah, just a, a, just a little, a little bonus of fleeting moments on your whole long journey. It's one dot on that long line of your journey, whether it's like the most successful or the biggest failure, it's one dot. Why, why are we getting wrapped up about being defined by that and our self-worth? So <laughs> deep stuff. Um, listen, Lance, I've got a couple more questions. You've been kind with your time here um, mm. and hopefully enjoying these, these kind of <laughs> scratching the back of the kind of the, the brain there. Um, okay. So if an athlete, 
you know, maybe interested to work on their mind and become more, I suppose, mentally tough. I'm putting that in inverted commas because that's a, that's a huge topic of debate, mental toughness, what that is. What would you suggest might be the first steps? You know, they, they might not have done much mental work or worked on their mind. If, if, you know, almost like what do you see as mental toughness and how would an athlete begin their journey on that? Mm. And nicely bring up mental toughness. So I gave a, a talk last week that I titled Mental Softness and that kind of points to the fact that all the things that actually end up being incredibly tough, like strong foundations for our mindset, they're the, they're the soft skills, they're mm. mindfulness mm. and gratitude and uh, kind of vulnerability and being embracing that. Um, so where, where to start? I mean, if you don't have the, the benefit of a mentor or a sports psychologist, then I'd start with, with a book with a, a psych book, there's so many great resources there. And I mean, the first, the first point, I mean, the beauty of working with somebody is that they can, they often can inspire you to what's possible with working with the mind. But um, that's, it took me a, a long time to, to get to that point of really being inspired by sports psychology, performance psychology. Um, so there's this book called I Can, The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness by Josephine Perry. And that would be a, an amazing, that's got all sorts of practical steps, exercises. There's a ton of them out there. I got, I used to work with the the chimp paradox mm. and the, that was Steve Peters, but actually it was, it was his colleague that I worked with. Um, yeah, there's just, there's all sorts of places. I would, I would start there, just pick up a nice. book and work your way through it. I, there's too many places to go. I think I would just want to say that, we always talk about performance being 90% mental, 80% mental, whatever it is. And then think about how much of your training life is spent on your psychological preparation. It's, mm. it's the opposite. It's five, 10% maybe. So there's just so much to gain from, from doing that work, doing your preparation. And it, it's practice just like you go to the gym to get stronger. You, these things you need to, they're not all just revelations that you just need to hear and that's it. You need to work on it. Mindfulness, it's a practice. You get It's a skill almost, but all of these things are. So um, I don't, when I joined the, the Danish Fencing Federation as the performance director, I brought on a psychologist immediately. It just became a part of every training camp we did was, I mean, every day of every training camp we did, we'd, we'd have focused on some of this stuff. It just wouldn't let people get away with not not practicing in some way, not not focusing on it. Awesome. Great, great advice. And uh, just just to add one little layer, the, the the gym of the mind. You know, I think gyms in the 70s and 80s started appearing everywhere. Everyone knew the physical benefits of going to the gym and working out and all that stuff. I think we're, we're pretty much in it, but almost I think in the next 20 years, the gym of the mind, you know, we, we've seen you know, apps and conversations and books and podcasts really going this we need to work on this people it 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 ain't something that just sits there and and and, and is just going to flourish itself yes it, it obviously will grow with all your experiences but why would you rely on that why would you rely on the randomness of your experience because if you're in an environment that doesn't allow that can you can you be a master of your environment can you create and that's that becomes mental the kind of the mindfulness work that journaling i think is a huge thing gratitude practice all of these things i think the gym of the mind i, I couldn't agree more and I, I yeah i get quite not hung up on it but i really like talking about that that concept mm, nice um 
I think this is quite a big question to to maybe bring it to a closure, Lawrence. And we've spoken about the athletes and we spoke about the individual person, but I want to just zoom out for a sec. So any advice for parents? I think parents and the support network of athletes, so the parents, the coaches, even, even the mentors of, of athletes, with all you've spoken about today, because sometimes that can get forgotten quite quickly and easily um, and their, their circle of influence can become so strong. So any, any advice on that support network? Mm. Yeah, a ton, a ton of advice. I mean, the starting point is, is all of these things we've been talking about of not being focused on the outcome so much. It goes equally for, for parents and those around them. I think parents have the hardest time just because of what they're what they're putting in, but they have the biggest impact as well. And just to know that their their influence is so strong that mm-hmm. just to be very aware of of what they're what they're asking into, what their conversations are like. Um, I see a lot more of a conversation, a lot more this being talked about a lot more, aware, awareness raising around kind of the impact on on athletes. But I see it still every day, the impact of parents in a negative sense on their on their on their kids. Just being too, it just being too important to them, to the parents. I mean, and um, it just has to be the kids' project from right from the beginning. Yeah, support, drive them to training, all of that, great. But it has to be, it has to be their choice and their project. And especially after the age, quite a young age, thirteen, fourteen, mm. and then parents should should really be backing off and backing off. And I. I, I had a, just loved the fact that from the age of 14, we were going to these competitions around in Europe. I could leave my parents at home, go out with our coach and our team, and that was just the best. And then just a few years later, it just the thing was that all the athletes would take both their parents with them to every competition. I thought, okay. that's that sounds nuts. You're losing all of the fun of what it is to, to be an independent 14-year-old. But yeah. Um, and, and how was it, because you mentioned um, your parents were both Olympians, Olympic fencers. Yeah. Uh, did that come with its own pressure and strain? Or how was that balance between you and them? No, I, th- I, don't, re- I don't remember it being any, any extra pressure, to be honest. I think I, they obviously supported me in everything I wanted to do in fencing. They were there allow, like supporting me in it. But I never, I never felt like it was their project in the slightest, that I always yeah. had to choose it. And that was clearly... I, don't know how they managed to do that if it was difficult but they they played that game well i think mm, amazing well really sound advice and yeah again i think everything we've spoken about above you know i'm really hoping which i know a lot of parents do listen to this hopefully they can kind of hear this and go oh actually maybe maybe i'm the win at all cost parents and you know screaming from the sidelines and you know all of a sudden how we can get that rebalance um, listen, Lawrence, you've been an absolute treat today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Um, I knew we were going to kind of hit the mark on a lot of these, these topics we talked about. Um, I'm highly recommending your book, The True uh, Becoming a True Athlete. Um, please go get it. Really highly recommend it. But if people want to follow you or kind of see the work you're doing, would you like to signpost them in uh, where to look for you? Yeah, well, I have a, a, a website myself. Uh, there's obviously the, the trueathleteproject.org is, is, the, is TAP's website. My website is lawrencehalstead.com. I'm at Lawrence Halstead on Twitter. Um, you'll find me on LinkedIn and everywhere, not Instagram. But um, by all means, get in contact, write me a message, whatever you like. I'll be, I'll be here. Perfect. And no TikTok yet for you then, by the sounds uh, of it. <laughs> no, not either. No, no, too, too much distraction going on there. Um, <laughs> Lawrence, you've been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for your time today. Nice, Jesse.